Welcome to Talking in Vain, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. I'm Dawn Berendt, your host for today. I'm the Infusion Nurse Educator for the INS. My guest today is Jonathan James. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us. I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Thanks so much, Dawn. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to share a story today. As you said, my name is Jonathan James. I'm the CEO and President of Hope Charities. And uh, it's a real joy to, to be with you and your listeners today to share a little bit about what we're doing to help families that are going through a crisis caused by chronic illness. I was actually born with hemophilia, uh, which is a bleeding disorder, and uh, have lived with some amazing nurses throughout my life and uh, been the beneficiary of uh, some incredible treatment, gone through some really difficult days and hardships as well and uh, kind of come out on the other side and really find it a, a real joy and pleasure to be able to serve people all over the country with what we do every day. So thanks for letting us be here. And thank you for being here as well. Let's jump right in. I would like to have you tell us about Hope Charities and what does Hope Charities do? Great question. Um, Hope Charities is a nonprofit that we started about 10 years ago, back in 2009, to really serve families with financial assistance and helping them get connected to resources. We find that there's an awful lot of resources that exist out there for patients that are going through a crisis or difficulty um, as they're trying to navigate different types of um, you know, uh, financial assistance programs. Maybe it's copay assistance programs with insurance, or um, maybe it's it's even product related where they need, um, you know, a compassion product for a period of time because they lost their insurance. Uh, maybe it's uh, durable medical equipment that needs to be donated. Things like that. There's a plethora of programs that exist out there, but unfortunately, there's no real easy way to Google. I need a free helmet, or I need, you know, a cryo cuff, or whatever those things may be. And um, we've really built relationships to help um, understand what programs and services are out there. We have case managers that help people to navigate um, those different various types of programs. And then we also have our own direct financial assistance programs where we help to support and fill in a gap when we can't fund assistance in another way. So it's kind of in a nutshell of what we do, and we focus mainly on people that are going through um, some type of crisis related to a chronic illness. Okay. Very good. So how did Hope Charities get started? Well, that's a long story, but I'll try to okay. make it a short one for you. Um, I was actually uh, born uh, with hemophilia A, as I mentioned uh, earlier, and had grown up uh, getting infusions. Uh, uh, when I was first born, there was no such thing as, as uh, home treatment, so I had to go to the hospital for every treatment. And I was accustomed to doing that mostly through the emergency room under a great amount of duress caused by um, internal bleeds mm-hmm. and joint bleeds that were happening. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the emergency room and uh, getting, you know, stuck sometimes five, six, seven, eight times in a, in a, in a very mm-hmm. difficult uh, environment. But um, later on, my uh, home uh, therapy became uh, an option and uh, my mom had to learn how to uh, be a, a layperson nurse. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> she learned how to infuse at home and had a lot of great coaches that helped us to get there and uh, still had quite a few hardships as I was growing up. Uh, as related to that, didn't solve all the problems, but, um, but it definitely uh, helped to be able to have access at home to some degree. And so growing up with hemophilia, I had been through my own journey and had had a lot of 
um, joint damage and surgeries, which were all byproducts of of uh, having severe hemophilia. And um, one of the things that we we really went through, I was told at a very young age that I would not live to be an adult uh, because mm. most of the people in my generation were affected with comorbidity that was uh, related to um, tainted blood products with HIV, hepatitis C, hepatitis B, and so on. And I was one of the very fortunate few that even though I was exposed repeatedly to those things, I was um, protected and I did not contract um, HIV or hepatitis C or hepatitis B, which was uh, three miracles uh, on top of each other uh, that were very, very significant. Mm. Um, as a result of that, though, I while I was protected in that sense, I, I really, it didn't um, insulate me from the full brunt force of joint damage caused by internal bleeds. So I had um, kind of grown up and got married and started trying to pursue living my dream. I started my own business. I was working as a financial planning consultant and really just living my dream. And uh, we had three kids and a fourth on the way. My wife was uh, supposed to be on bed rest, uh, strict bed rest. She had incredibly difficult pregnancies. And um, in that time, uh, she wasn't able to work. And as a result of that, um, uh, I ended up uh, going through a season where I had to have about four surgeries back-to-back, both ankles and my right elbow at the same time, and ended up in a wheelchair for two and a half years. I went uh, 23 months, actually, without a W-2 paycheck. Mm-hmm. And I had taken my own advice. I had some savings uh, set aside, but um, I, uh, of course, went through that very quickly. And um, after about you know six to eight, nine months or so, uh, we found ourselves in a situation where I started to be threatened with losing my home, losing my vehicles, losing everything, and um, you know didn't really have a way out. There was just no you know uh, other than what we had you know tried to do on our own. Uh, didn't really have any any clear way to navigate that. Um, I had uh, if back up just a little bit, I had actually spent some years traveling and speaking and been able to encourage patients living in the hemophilia community specifically uh, through the years and and really had seen people go through things like this before. And my wife and I always had a heart to help people. And uh, we'd actually helped some people out individually a number of times uh, uh, on a personal level. And we always thought, gosh, it would be great if we could start something to really help people that are going in, uh, through difficult times. But we had no clue uh, how few resources there were out there for people that needed direct help. There's obviously a lot of tremendous organizations that exist um, to really help educate, um, even some uh, advocacy, especially on the political policy level, some great work that's going on out there. But very, very, very few organizations that were around that could really help practically by helping getting uh, get get patients, uh, you know, direct assistance. And so... Um, so we found ourselves in the middle of that spot mm-hmm. and, um, everything that, uh, you know, that, that it seemed like every time we would find a program, there was some reason why we didn't qualify and it was very, very difficult. And so, um, we became very aware of the need because of that. We were fortunate again, um, because we had an incredible, community that just rallied around us. And um, we had people that we did not even know, had never even met before, 
that would show up to our, our mailbox and pull out a bill and pay it before we even had a chance to get to the mailbox mm-hmm. to open it. And so it was such a humbling experience. And of course, I, you know, having my own business and being a professional and having always sort of, you know, been leading the way and taking care of myself, it was just something that was very, very, very humbling for me and difficult. And so as a result of all of those things kind of culminating, um, we had uh, some of our friends said, look, we, we, we found some business uh, uh, men that want to really contribute and donate to help your family out. And so we think the best way to do that is to start a foundation in your name. And I said, well, well, whatever you do, don't, don't, they said, oh, we're going to name it the Jonathan James Foundation. I said, don't, don't do that. I said, there's, there's a, a lot that I've got to work through. But I said, one of the things that I would love is if we're able to start this in such a way um, that we could help others uh, in the future. And so we did. We started it as a nonprofit at that time. That was in 2009. And, um, the goal was really to help originally hemophilia families going through a crisis and uh, to really support them through that. Well, about you know 18 months or so down the road, I was back on my feet and uh, was able to get back to work and doing well. We ended up doing our first fundraiser and we raised about $14,000 and we were able to immediately start helping other families uh, right away. And that was just the most exciting and thrilling time. It felt a little... Mm-hmm. A little uh, uh, mom and pop in some ways because <laughs> it was uh, it was just word of mouth. It was just very grassroots. It was one of those things where people would, you know, say, "Hey, I know so and so, and he's been in the hospital for two weeks." And hey, you know, I, I heard that they're about to lose their home. Can you help? You know, and it was that kind of thing. And we were just flying by the seat of our pants and helping people any way we could. And we were thrilled to do it. And uh, the next year, you know, it grew. We we doubled. It was about thirty thousand the next year, and then sixty thousand. Well, about, I don't know, four or five years into it, I was still working and just, just doing it uh, volunteer, voluntarily. My wife was helping to run the organization at the time. And eventually, we decided that um, it was kind of, there was just too much going on. We were going to have to hire someone full time. But the organization really just didn't have the resources to be able to do that. And so, we were giving all the money away and didn't want to change that. And so... Uh, we had a gentleman that actually stepped up to the plate and said, he, he had said, look, I really believe in your mission and what you're doing. And uh, if you're willing to step into it, he said, I, I really would love the opportunity to pay your salary for the first year and see how it goes. And so I actually started full time six years ago. And uh, really for that reason, if it wasn't for, for that moment, uh, I don't think that we would be doing what we are today. And uh, and so we we uh, made the kind of the faith step to take a, a a step forward in that way, and and uh, haven't looked back since. To this day, we still raise all of our own administrative costs and overhead expenses uh, on our own. We still give a hundred percent of every single donation made by an individual. If you go to our website and you make a twenty-five dollar gift or something like that, a hundred percent of that goes directly to helping a family in need. And last year, we were able to help three uh, give. Uh, people in all 50 states uh, support uh, with helping them through a crisis and direct financial assistance program actually gave $331,000 away directly to helping families in need last year. And probably even more exciting than that, we were able to help people acquire over $10 million of additional resources. 
um, with connecting them to other foundations and other programs that we were able to help get them through those processes as well. So um, it's really exciting to see what we're doing. And this year we're getting really close. Actually, I think by June, if we stay on pace, we will have given away directly out the door over a million dollars to helping families. And in so many ways, I never thought we would be here. And at the same time, we look at the 115 million people that are diagnosed with a chronic illness in the United States, and we think there's so much farther to go and a lot of hurting people out there. And we, we have a, a lot to achieve, and we're, we're, we're driven to do so and can't wait to do more of it. Wow. You um, exceeded the response that I was hoping for with that question. Um, <laughs> phenomenal numbers, uh, phenomenal story. I love uh, the grittiness from that grassroots start to now. Um, and, and truly the, the hope that you're able to bring uh, in these direct contributions mm-hmm. and then also, you know, indirect hope as or help as well. Um, excellent work. That's right. Excellent work. I think you've already touched you. just a bit on my next question about, you know, who are you helping? Is it is it regionally? And I know that you're, I think you're based in Louisiana. Um, that's, that's correct. correct. So, uh, so you're, yeah. you've expanded well beyond Louisiana, so, um, and, and nationally as well. So it sounds like you've helped someone in all states of the United States. Yeah, we've been fortunate to be able to help people in all 50 states. That really started for us about five or six years ago, um, and, and we've continued to expand, uh, you know, and, and really... Um, Never even thought that we would have the opportunity to do some international work, but that's sort of opening up a little bit for us, although we don't have any programs that serve directly. Uh, we've still done quite a bit, actually, in the last two years uh, with helping, um, you know, work with some international organizations as well. So we're excited about that, okay. too. So my next question for you is um, whether or not you specialize in a specific disease state, or do you help people with multiple diseases? That's a great question, Dawn. Actually, I, I um, you know, mentioned earlier that being born with hemophilia, our framework was very much around bleeding disorders. And so we kind of started with that, um, you know, objective to help families that were going through something similar as what we had experienced. Um, about uh, four years ago, we had some friends that started to approach us and say, hey, listen, you know, we need help. Uh, with these types of things, you guys are doing this kind of work, but in another area, could you help us? And so, we realized that a lot of the programs that we were um, that we were working on were, uh, you know, not disease specific. And so, we were connecting people to various types of resources that didn't they did it didn't matter if you had hemophilia or diabetes or cancer or if it was some other type of thing. And so, um, about three years ago, we we decided to open up our, our resource connection program some of our case management services to um, families that were dealing with other types of chronic illness. And so, um, you know, we've continued to expand. I would say a large majority of what our our practical uh, uh, work has been is still very connected to the bleeding source community, but we've seen continually expanding uh, resources in areas like sickle cell and MS, ALS, um, we've even done some work in cancer, although we've focused really on rare areas. Our main primary goal is not to duplicate service, but to really just 
fill in the gaps. And so we made chronic illness a, a broad stroke um, in that sense that we wanted to help people that were going through a crisis, a medical crisis, um, related to a chronic illness. And, and to us, that really only excludes um, something that is an acute injury. So if they were, there was a severe car accident or something like that, we may not be able to help in those um, settings. But again, if it's a chronic illness and then there's a medical crisis associated with it, that's really our target okay, audience. Very good. So let's have you tell us a little bit about the future for um, Hope Charities and, and where you see your organization going as the years move on. That's a great question. I, you know, one of the things that I'm probably the most passionate about these days is as we've been doing the work that we're doing, one of the things that I think is very um, understudied or underobserved, maybe underappreciated is another way to say that, um, is the significance that um, mental health plays in clinical health. Uh, and I don't mean to, I know that there is a, a variation of clinical depression that, you know, obviously is, is also clinical in nature. So I don't, I don't want to detract from that, but I do really see that there is a difference between people who go through phase, we all face days and moments of, of depression. Um, but then there's also clinical depression. Statistically speaking, there's a study that was done by Jane Turner back in 2000 that showed that around 36% of uh, people that were diagnosed with chronic illness uh, had experienced clinical depression, uh, and it was affecting their overall health mm-hmm. outcomes uh, as a result of it. And one of the things that we find is that pretty much everyone that we deal with is in some phase of that. I, I you know, have some dear friends that are in psychology and sociology that work you know, in this field specifically, and they talk a lot about how it's difficult to get from going through moments of depression to being actually diagnosed mm-hmm. with clinical depression. That's a mm-hmm. pretty big step. And so if you see that there's roughly 36% of the population that is diagnosed with clinical depression, there's probably another 30% that's, that's not really diagnosed or they haven't been diagnosed yet, um, but that are going through some phase of depression as well. So we believe, at least in our experience, we see a majority of people that are, are going through, you know, uh, especially chronic illness um, that are going through, uh, you know, some form of depression. And we believe it plays a much more significant role than I think is currently observed. And truly, uh, you know, there's an there's a international qualitative think tank by the name of Demos that actually they, they specifically outline that they say that one person per day takes their life mm. as a result of, um, you know, uh, living with a chronic illness. And to me, that, that's, that's far too many. Uh, we, we've seen it here uh, in the work that we do. Last year, we, we had about six patients that decided to take their own lives as a result of just, you know, just, just going through the throes of, of the rigor uh, that it takes to continually, you know, try to keep their health um, stabilized. And uh, we see that the support system from, you know, the social workers to the doctors to the nurses to the families to the girlfriends, the, the, the parents, the, you know, all of these elements play a significant role in the support system uh, of an individual and helping them see that they have value 
beyond mm-hmm. their diagnosis. And it's really difficult to sort of speak of that life to them and encourage them in that way. Um, and it takes a lot of repetition. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of for us where we really hope that we get to make a, a strong and significant impact as we move forward into our future of doing the work that we do. We hope to be able to put some data around that through research and also to be able to help, um, you know, continually expand really up you know, bring attention to the fact that the community and support systems around these people uh, play a critical role in helping to keep these people inspired so that they can live another day and fulfill their value in life. Because the treasure that's been deposited in us as human beings is far greater than what any diagnosis mm-hmm. could take away from us. And as long as we can stay focused on that, then the beauty of life can really flourish. Thank you. Thank you for that. So now let's, let's turn the, the conversation just slightly. And if it's okay with you, um, I want to remind us together that our audience is uh, infusion nurses and other practitioners throughout uh, mm-hmm. the country that, that work in the area of infusion. And I'm wondering if you have some stories to tell us about experiences that you had that would help us see ourselves in the workplace as we're um, taking care of patients who might be just like you? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And, and I really am thankful you brought it up. I actually have about three nurses in particular that were very critical for me uh, growing up and, and, and were there in some significant turning points for me personally. And um, you know, three doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, <laughs> when <laughs> I've had probably hundreds of nurses that have helped and attended to needs that I've had in, in the hospital or what have you, but um, there was three nurses in particular that that have uh, that were that were very you know connected daily. Obviously, living with a chronic illness, there's a there's these, this longevity uh, of, mm-hmm. of of relationship that you build with. Um, those individuals and caregivers in your life that's very different I think than than uh, you know if you have an acute injury or something like that but I know for me um, one of my first nurses when I was very young was nurse Penny um, she was uh, just a, 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 a wonderful wonderful lady but um, I can remember as a very young child I had a lot of traumatic experiences um, you know where you know going to the emergency room and most of the treatments that we had as, as young kids were, um, done, um, uh, you know, most everything today is done prophylactically or, or, or on a proactive basis. Uh, preventative mm-hmm. treatment is, is, is the norm in hemophilia today specifically. Um, but you know, back then it, it wasn't that way. Uh, there was shortage of treatment. There was a lack of availability of therapy. And as a result of that, um, th- th- there was a, you know, everything was done um, after there was an extreme bleed, which is incredibly painful. Matter of fact, they, they say that um, you can only compare the pain of a uh, severe uh, joint bleed to that mm-hmm. of a mother in labor. Now, I've never had a baby myself, <laughs> uh, obviously, but my wife has had four of them, and I can relate a little bit, but... I would just warn any guys that are listening that have hemophilia, please don't tell your wives <laughs> that you can relate to their pain because it doesn't work. But, 
but anyway, I did have, um, you know, uh, just, just some incredible memories I, I, of, of an incredible amount of trauma uh, and pain, but also of, of Nurse Penny. Uh, you know, she would, she would kind of stick her face in my face, and I was being strapped down to the table sometimes and being stuck sometimes 10 and 11 times um, trying to find a vein. And um, because I had gone days and days and days trying to hide this bleed that I didn't want to go to the hospital for. And uh, by this point, it was just so extreme that all I could do was cry. And, uh, you know, Nurse Penny would stick her face in my face and she would say, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. And she had the magic touch. She would come in when everybody else had stuck me five and six times. She'd come in and one stick and it was done. And uh, there was something about her calming nature that just reminded me that everything was really going to be okay. And, you know, all these years later, I'm, I'm 40 mm. years old today. And I, I, you know, I, I look back and I still can sometimes see her face and think about, you know, those moments where it's all going to be okay, you know? And, uh, it was really marking mm. for me as a young child. And then fast forward a little bit, my family actually relocated to Louisiana because of my illness. Louisiana at the time had a special program that helped people with hemophilia that really made it possible for me to get treatment. And so we relocated here. There was a nurse by the name of Karen Wolf who was, um, has, has since passed away. But she was kind of, uh, I always thought of her as kind of Aunt Karen. She was just everybody's aunt. You know, she was just the, the person that that everybody uh, was, was, she took care of all of the hemophilia patients at that time. And, uh, you know, she had her hands full. Uh, I remember one year in particular when we first met her, I was about 15 years old, and she had that year gone to over 100 funerals of people that had passed away in the area. And uh, there was just a lot of people that, that had died. And I don't know if a lot of that was because of tainted uh, blood product and because of HIV and hepatitis C and things of that nature. But I'm not really sure, um, you know, all of what was going on in her heart and mind. But I do know that she was endeared to me in a way that, that probably was, um, I noticed, was a little different than some of the other patients. And at the same time, she, she kind of kept her distance a little bit. And, and I always thought maybe it was because so many people, um, you know, she had been close to, she had lost. But I remember some key moments. There was a, a time when I had a severe elbow bleed and I was in college and I was trying to struggle through things and I had gone three or four days and I was kind of the notorious, you know, kid that didn't always keep my infusion records like I should and I didn't do all the things that I was supposed to do and I didn't infuse when I was supposed to and all those things. And, uh, and she said, you know, she says, uh, it's going to be okay. You just call me anytime. And sure enough, you know, uh, I would I call, this was before cell phones and stuff, but I, I you know, I'd call her at the treatment center. She'd call me right back and, and, uh, you know, she'd say, okay, this is what I want you to do. And I remember this one particular time she had to call eight different hospitals to try to find enough medication for me because I had not ordered factor in forever, but instead of scolding me, like I was expecting, she just found a solution. And she worked really hard to get me there. And then she called and made sure that they were expecting me when I went. And, uh, and, and, you know, she never brought it up again. And that was one of those things that it may seem simple, but at the time it was, it was life changing for me. It was the fact that she was there and that she, um, mm -hmm. you know, she knew we, her and I both knew I didn't do what <laughs> I was supposed to do. <laughs> and I was in a lot of pain and I was suffering as a result of it. 
And, uh, but she, you know, she, she was mm-hmm. kind enough to not bring it up. And a few years later, I was, um, I was having a really severe, um, about actually, I think it was when I was going through, when I was in the wheelchair and I ended up in the hospital and they were going to do, uh, I was having an ankle surgery and they were going to do a nerve block and on, on, on a hemophilia patient, especially nerve block was at the time was still kind of new concept and, and there was a lot of concern about, you know, a bleed forming or something where they do the nerve block. And so she was a little worried about it, but she met me there at five o'clock in the morning and she stayed in that uh, emergency room, but she, she, she actually in the operating room, but she stayed with me the whole time through the, through the pre-op section. And I, I don't know why, but I just never will forget that moment. She held my hand and we just sat there and, and I was nervous and I had had surgeries before, but for some reason I was just nervous about this one. And she sat there at five o'clock in the morning. I'm married. I'm a grown man at this time. You know, I have two kids, I think, you know, and, and, you know, but I was, I had been through a lot and this was not something I was wanting to go through again. And, uh, and she sat there and she held my hand. She watched me do the nerve block. And she stayed there with me all the way until I went into the operating room. She and then she went and sat in the waiting room with my wife for a few hours, and then and then uh, she came and checked on me every day. And I remember thinking at the time that you know she didn't seem to say much, and I and I thought you know I, I just I didn't know you know she she wasn't uh, it was common that we would have good conversations in those times, but she just she didn't say much and. Um, you know, I, I, I wondered what was going through her mind, but I re- I realized later that she became, it, it's almost like that distance that she kind of held me out a little bit when I was young because of all the funerals she'd gone through. She started to really just, I was one of her older patients at the time and she, it, you know, we'd been through a lot already by that point. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, she just, mm-hmm. she just stayed there by my side and checked on me. And there was a handful of times where they started to give me the wrong medication or they did something else. And she would come downstairs and she would give the whole floor heck and tell them that they were, <laughs> you know, crazy and whatever. And, uh, I, I guarantee you, Karen saved my life on, on, uh, more than a half dozen occasions. Mm-hmm. I'm certain of it. So but she was very special. And there's mm-hmm. so many memories of those mm-hmm. moments where she really, was just there and she was present and I have a dear friend of mine who is uh, uh, has done is a chaplain and he's done a lot of work in chaplaincy and he says that there's something that they teach them it's called the ministry mm-hmm. of presence and it's basically where you're just present you're not you're not you're not saying anything you're not uh, you're not sitting there to, to, you know, encourage or give a encouraging word. And I think so often, I know I struggle with this sometimes. It's like, man, somebody's going through something really difficult. Yesterday we had a patient who was in the hospital trying to help them out with some things and I was writing them a note and I, and I was thinking in my mind, I'm thinking, man, I just, mm-hmm. I want to say the right thing, you know, and it just wasn't coming, you know, those moments. And, and I remember back some of the most significant times in my life that Karen had was mm-hmm. when she was just there holding my hand. And it was that ministry of presence. She didn't even know what it was, but it was just that. And uh, many years later, I got to celebrate her retirement with her. And then she ended up becoming ill and kind of walked through that with her as well. And we were fortunate enough to be able to honor her at one of our galas um, and uh, that, we, that we put on. And it was just a very, very special, mm-hmm. special, special time. But she was a dear friend and a close confidant mm-hmm. for many, many years. 
Thank you, Jonathan, so much for reminding us the role that we as infusion nurses and healthcare professionals play in just being present. Um, certainly there was more to it than that. Yeah. There's, there's the clinician piece, and there's all of our clinical background that we bring to the table. Um, but just just being reminded of how significant that that patient and clinician relationship is was uh, just beautiful to hear. So I'm, I'm looking at your website, and um, there's a quote there, and I'm, I would... I know that we're going to put this in our materials as we promote this podcast as well. But I, I would like to read that quote, and it reminds me of just what you're talking about. Your quote, Facing a chronic illness can be a long uphill battle that can feel cold and lonely over time. Hope Charities was established to be a friend in the midst of that difficult place that can come alongside someone and support them like family. We understand some of the challenges people face, I want them to know that they are not alone. So yeah. let's let's move along um, before, you know, I'm I'm just right on the edge here. You know, this is a very sensitive, uh, gentle mm-hmm. conversation. Um, tell us what we can do. Um, how how those of us who would like to donate, whether um, it's our time, our finances, tell us more about the donation process and and how we might contribute. Well, I appreciate that. As I mentioned earlier, one of the things that we're really proud about is uh, proud of is that we still um, are able to to give a hundred percent of individual donations uh, go directly to helping a family. Part of that three hundred and thirty one thousand dollars that we were able to give away directly last year went uh, came in from from individual donations. Uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to actually go above and beyond that and raise some additional funds to grant processes and everything like that too. So uh, we were able to match some of those funds in addition. Um, and and so those, those things are really exciting. If you have an opportunity, we do invite people uh, to get on our website and, and give, even if it's just $25 a month or $50 a month, something that can really help somebody. It really can make all the difference. And uh, I, I, so the, the financial piece is always there. I, I think um, you know, our treasurer said it best one time. He said, you know, money is not the most uh, significant thing, but our time is. And so, you know, we are always looking for volunteers. And so we have um, several key big events that we do each year, for us at least, um, that we have, and, and one that's in the spring and one that's in the fall. And so if you're ever in the New Orleans area and you want to be a part of helping us to put on one of those events, we would love to have your help to do that. Um, and uh, one of those in the spring, which is actually just coming up here in about six weeks or so, is our Hope Gala. Uh, we do a spring leadership uh, mini conference, if you want to call it that, uh, that goes on for two days of education beforehand for a lot of our re- referral sources, which um, work out to be a lot of our treatment centers and chapters and local nonprofits and things like that come to that event. And we do some training and help to, to give them some tools and resources for a couple days and then we have our actual gala is the grand finale um, which we invite a lot of the local community to as well and we have around 400 people or so that attend that so it's a it's a it's a decent sized event and it's a lot of fun but we're always looking for help there and then also we have um, our hope conference which happens in the fall 
and uh, that's an exciting time uh, with about 600 or so attendees um, that people come from all over uh, to participate in that. And we, we have support groups that meet locally in about 20 states, um, and those things are always um, incredibly valuable. So we use our conference as an opportunity to have those support group leaders come in and first to provide training for them, help them to understand how to help navigate and navigate difficult conversations. We actually, last year, we did a um, mental health uh, certification program so that people could get trained to actually know how to help people if they're going through a challenge, including suicide prevention, which was an amazing time. Um, so there's some amazing things there. So if you'd like to participate in, in either either by uh, attending or uh, even jumping in to help us by volunteering, that would be a huge help. And then lastly, um, you can always, uh, you know, we're, we're constantly looking for partnerships and, and uh, ways to develop deeper relationships with treatment centers, uh, hospitals that deal with, um, uh, you know, some of these specialized areas that really need uh, ongoing chronic support, specialty pharmacies, places that are working with patients that are going through crisis uh, on a regular basis, we're always looking to um, just expand how we can serve those patients even better. So if, if you know of somebody that's, uh, you know, dealing with this or if you're, you're in the place where you're working for an organization that um, has a lot of patients that need help on a regular basis, reach out to us. We would love to hear from you and, um, and we'd love to, to just see how we can help and how we can navigate that. So it, it's not always about money. Sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's about, you know, the relationships is what's mm-hmm. the most valuable thing in life. But if you, if you don't have, you know, those things available and, and, uh, money helps too, we can't really do what we do without it. So it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, Wonderful when we have uh, all of those things working together. Thank you, Jonathan, uh, for being my guest today on Talking in Vain. Um, We are so excited that you spent this time with us today, and we're happy um, to have heard your story. We're happy to be reminded of the patient side of things, and we're so happy to learn more about Hope Charities and the work that you do. This concludes this episode of Talking in Vain. Thank you for listening.